We're going to finish up our series today, uh, our mini-series on the questions that you guys submitted surrounding relationships, questioning our relationships. And uh, I, uh, I don't think I need to... Okay, sorry, I just had to see... Uh, you know, I, I wanted to normally... We're going to talk about some stuff today, I, I'll just say. We're going to talk about some stuff today that's, that normally, uh, if I would have been on top of my game this last week, we would have sent out an email. So if you have younger kids here who you feel inappro- that you feel it would be inappropriate for them to hear illustrations and discussion around uh, identity issues, in particular sexual identity issues... I want to say an apology to you and recommend that if you're uncomfortable with that, you go ahead and have them uh, go out to kids' ministry right now uh, because that's going to be our topic today. Um, and I, I feel bad. I, I really, when we talk about stuff like this that uh, may some parents may feel is not appropriate for the kids, I really do want to do an email ahead of time so you know that. So I apologize if I've offended anybody with that. Uh, but we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to talk about it, and it's an interesting topic because a lot of churches don't talk about it. They don't talk about it for a couple of reasons. Sometimes uh, the, the most uh, prominent reason we don't talk about that is because uh, it tends to be something that uh, if you talk about, everybody goes away and says you're intolerant. And, you know, I've been thinking about that word, and tolerance for me personally has been one of those words and one of those ideas that has caused a tremendous amount of pain in my own life. I can look back over the last 15, 20 years and I can see relationships that because of the way tolerance is preached in our culture, hemorrhaged because of what is taught about it. And I, I, I want to tell you, you know, I mean, I've got, I've got lifelong friendships that, that I still wish were friendships that are not friendships because of this issue. I've got friends who, who, uh, who, whose marriages have blown apart because of this issue. And, uh, and, be, and kids who are left fatherless or, or, or motherless because of this issue. And this is not just something that, to me, that, that, that is this abstract content, concept. It, it is something that's dramatically impacted my life. And I honestly find the definition of to- tolerance, as it's used in our society today, to be severely inadequate. You can see up here some of the, if you look at the dictionary, here's, here's some of the key words out of the definition from the dictionary. It's a fair, objective, and permissive attitude toward those whose opinions, practices, race, religion, nationality are different from one's own. And further it goes on in the dictionary to say the capacity to endure or endurance. Now, I'm really glad that we have a permissive attitude when it comes to religious freedom that we have an attitude that does not enforce uh, religion and religion's views on other people. I'm so glad for a lot of what's in here, and there's so much good in that definition. But here's the issue I have a problem with. I have a problem with the word permissive. Because functionally what that does in our life is, especially when we start talking about morality or right and wrong, it ends up getting us to the place where Wherever you define that boundary, anybody who doesn't agree with that is intolerant. And when that happens, it hemorrhages relationships. And I find that definition completely inadequate from a personal relational standpoint and from a biblical standpoint as well. The medical definition of it is this, the limits that one can survive in a hostile environment. Now, doesn't that sound friendly? But really, that's, that's really what tolerance is. And if we look at the way it's used in our culture, 
it ends up hemorrhaging relationships unnecessarily all of the time in the name of trying to keep them together. It's such an insufficient definition to guide our lives. I think Jesus is a better definition. And I think even our term that we use here, being friends with faith, is a better definition. I'd rather that we learn to be friends than be tolerant. Because tolerance doesn't allow us to talk honestly and authentically about our differences and about our, our disagreements. It doesn't allow us to be who we are and be open about that. True friendship does. And Jesus demonstrated this in his life. He, uh, he, he decided walking down the road one day to go to eat with Zacchaeus, the most despised guy in town. And it wasn't because he agreed with him. It wasn't because he agreed with what he did. It's because he was going to be a friend to him and be compassionate and kind. Jesus brought into his inner circle a prostitute. Jesus demonstrated throughout all of his life and his interactions with human beings that he had the ability to be in close relationship with a, per- with a person who continued to struggle with identity issues and yet and sin issues and yet walk with them and see them come to greater and greater levels of freedom and peace and joy and a sense of who they were. He spoke clearly about truth and yet he loved deeply. You know, today... We're going to spend most of our time talking about sexual identity because it's a question that was submitted and because it's touched all of our lives. I doubt highly that I could go around this room and not find somebody, not find a person either who has dealt with it themselves or a person who has a family member or a close friendship who has not dealt with the issue or somebody in their work environment. It's a prominent issue that we deal with. And it's not just sexual identity. I mean, yes, that's what we're going to spend the most of the time focusing on today. It's identity in general. And this is one of the issues that come up when we even try to talk about this. Because because what is our identity? We all struggle with it. Am I beautiful enough? Am I good enough? Am I I successful or am I a failure? And we've we've all probably got stories growing up about how we felt like we were inadequate or we were a failure or we've got these identity issues that we wrestle with or or who am I? Where do I fit? You know, we we deal with this especially in school age, but we deal with it all of our life. Where do I fit? What group do I fit in? Do I fit in with the artists? Do I fit in with the smart kids? Do I fit in with the athletic kids? Do I fit in here or the business people? Or who do I fit in with? Identity is an issue we deal with across the board. And somehow when we deal with sexual identity a lot of times in our lives, we try to separate that out from the other issues and we make it this big deal that becomes divisive when the reality is that God came to help establish in all of us an identity that is whole, that is pure, that is joy-filled, that is peaceful, that's really who we are and who He created us to be. But we all deal with identity theft because of the sin that's happened around us, because of our sin, the things that we've gotten into, the things that we've read, the things that we've believed about who we should be or who we shouldn't be, what we need to do in order to be happy, what we need to do in order to be significant, or, or the sin that other people have committed against us, whether it's abuse of some sort or whether it's just simply neglect or, or, or giving us an idea that we're only good if we do X, and, and, and unless we do X, we can't be accepted and loved. It doesn't matter, but we've all faced these issues and we've had, had our true identity 
taken from us. And, and whenever I talk about identity, I, 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 I love to think and I always picture in my mind cars and car accidents. You know, we're a Porsche or, or we're a beautiful Mercedes or, or a beautiful Lexus and we've been, in this, we've been in this horrible wreck because of the pain, because of our sin, because of our misjudgments and because of the judgments of others. We're walking around through life with bumped up fenders and bent out of, bent out of alignment wheels and engines that don't always fire and don't always work. And, and, and the, whole, the whole purpose of this time together today is to help us take one more step towards recovering that identity that Jesus created us for. He's the creator. He created us as this perfect thing. And whether we need to take a dent out of this fender or we need to put a new engine in or we need to do whatever, whether it's sexual identity or whether it's a sense of identity of failure, it doesn't make any difference. It's the same stuff. God has come and Jesus has sent to us to try to help us recover who we really are so that we can go down the road with the wheels lined up, that we can shine again, that we can be the beautiful people God has created us to be. Today, to help us with this, we have a, a wonderful privilege today of a, of a testimony. Shannon Summerall is going to come. and Shannon is a, a gal that I've just recently met and got to talk with a little bit this last week, and, but she's actually got connections here. You've, you've all heard of the theory of six degrees of separation where there's a theory that you can go through six relationships and be connected to anybody else on the planet. Well, this is a one or two degree separation. Shannon actually went to seminary with Jeremy, our youth pastor, and knew him there and now actually works at Quest Community Church, not this one, the one in Lexington, where Jeremy also used to be on staff there years ago. And, uh, and, and unbeknownst to Jeremy or, or, or others, uh, she actually met uh, Melissa Schaefer at a seminar in Florida and has become dear friends with Melissa for many years. And then all of a sudden we found out they both know him a couple weeks ago. And uh, would you just welcome Shannon as she tells her story? Uh, uh, Thanks so much for having me from the other quest. Um, they're praying for you guys this morning, and uh, I really think it just answers the cry of Jesus' heart that the church would be one when we get to partner in ministry together. So it's been just a privilege to get to worship with you guys this morning, and it's uh, a privilege to get to share my story. Um, I grew up in church, uh, but the loudest thing that I heard was to put a smile on my face and act like everything was okay. And so I learned from a really young age to be divided in what was going on on the inside and what I portrayed on the outside. My parents' marriage was a bit of a disaster, and they tried really hard, and they loved me a ton, but my dad was emotionally absent, and I was codependent with my mom. So it left my ability to... Um, bond with people really stunted from a young age and multiple abuse perpetrators from the time that I was four and uh, it really left me confused about my sexuality about my identity even about being a female and I was filled with anxiety and fear from my earliest memories I was afraid to go to church I was afraid to go to school I was afraid to go anywhere and I never told anybody uh, my first encounter with God was at a church camp in the seventh grade, and I understood that he was real. I felt his presence. The fear went away, and I felt safe for the first time. And I spent the next bunch of years searching for that feeling again. Um, there were three big churches in town, so there were lots of retreats, and I went on every one of them that I could. And I really survived from spiritual high to spiritual high. It was like I was filled with holes 
And after I would have these encounters, I would go home and just leak. And I didn't understand what I needed to do to keep him with me. Um, my teenage years were filled with more sexual abuse um, by an older woman. And I remember going out into my yard one night when I was in high school, just screaming up at the sky, God, why? Why are you letting this happen? I don't understand. And I didn't hear an answer. I didn't hear anything. And what I did hear, though, was the, the teasing that I'd had my whole life of being such a good athlete, of the clothes that I wore. And um, I'd only really ever experienced safety with females. And so when the first lesbian approached me, I consigned myself to the identity of being gay. And I jumped into that lifestyle for the next several years. I, um, I was really divided, though, because I knew that it wasn't who I was created to be. And I thought it was up to me to change it. And, you know, New Year's resolutions, we're all about trying to change ourselves. How many of you guys actually carry through a resolution every year? I don't. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but it was just kind of one of those things. I'd wake up in the morning and think, okay, I'm not going to be gay anymore. And it would last for about three days, and I'd be right back where I started. And it left me with shame and confusion and guilt. I ended up in counseling, diagnosed with an eating disorder, an anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and I was depressed. Um, add on suicidal thoughts to that, and I was a train wreck. Um, I lived a double life. I was really involved at a campus ministry, and I spent the rest of my time with girls. Uh, I was a user and a manipulator of people, and I could get them to do whatever I wanted them to do. Um, there was always this anxiety and fear on the inside, though, and I found that if I could get to places where other Christians were, things would be quiet for a little while. So when my world started spinning out of control, I'd go on another retreat or I'd go to a place where, where Christians were. And I remember specifically every quarter during college going to this campus worship service and um, they'd be having communion and doing worship. And I would lay on the floor in the back of the chapel and just cry my eyes out, begging God to help me, begging him to come and to show up. And in his kindness, he would meet me and he would give me a little bit of reprieve. He would give me hope. And uh, I would leave, and that next quarter, I was the same sobbing mess on the chapel floor. I just couldn't find anything that would last. I went to seminary because I wanted to be in ministry for God. I really wanted to serve him. And my journals through those years are filled with the questions, okay, God, what's wrong? What's missing? I don't understand. Um, I did internships. I did three months at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. I went to healing prayer schools, I did conferences, I read books, I had great counselors, good friends that prayed for me, and nobody had the answer to what was missing on the inside. I just felt so empty. I would play the guitar and sing for hours, because when I did, I would feel God near to me, but it just wouldn't last. Um, you know, God really, in his kindness, kept meeting me. During a really specific prayer time, he came and he told me that he made me a female on purpose. So that healed my femininity, which is pretty awesome. And he started healing the abuse, and I walked out of the lesbian lifestyle. But I was still living from encounter to encounter with God, and I didn't know why he wouldn't stay. Um, when I graduated from seminary, I was just kind of waiting on what to do next. And um, I was out on a bike ride uh, one Sunday afternoon in August, and I had a bad bicycle accident and fractured my pelvis, and I was in the bed for weeks. I couldn't move my legs. Um, I couldn't get out of the bed. I couldn't even go to the bathroom by myself, and it was so humbling. For someone who had spent most of my life trying to do everything myself, depending on myself, um, I couldn't do it. 
And I'd always been able to get to the place where other Christians were when things were really bad. And because I couldn't get out of the bed, I couldn't get my next God fix. Um, it was really hopeless in those days. It was so dark. And Jesus really used it. My next door neighbor would come over and invite me to her quest. And um, she'd just tell me about this church. And she invited me over and over and over. And um, I finally, just to get her to shut up, said, okay, when I can walk again, I'll come to your church. Just quit inviting me, okay? And um, and so I did. And I wandered in the doors of her church and uh, just desperate. I was desperate to get to the answer of why I was so empty inside, desperate to understand um, why I didn't feel forgiven, why I wasn't 100% sure that I was going to heaven when I had done all this great stuff for God, I fasted, I prayed, I meditated, I had a seminary degree for crying out loud, and I was empty. And uh, one night I was in a conversation with, with my friend Amy and my neighbor Rebecca, and um, we'd been talking for a long time about my encounters with God and who he was and who I thought I was. And Amy looked at me and she said, Shannon, in all your encounters with, with God, where have you dealt with the cross? caught me so off guard it's like she'd shot me in the stomach it was so visceral um so i put my head down and said i just need you guys to be quiet for a second and so i started racing through all of the healings and the encounters the times that i'd heard his voice the ways he'd used me in ministry the retreats and there was nothing about the cross and it was it was really painful and it was one of the most relieving experiences of my entire life I'd missed the whole point of Christianity, and I could stop chasing God. He found me that night. And so on January 11, 2007, I got to ask Jesus into my heart. And I gave him my heart that was full of holes and exchanged it for his heart that is whole. He took my anxiety and my fears and my trying, and he gave me peace. That night, laying on the floor by the cross where I'd given my life to him, I experienced rest for the first time. I finally understood he hadn't ever wanted me to need to be around other Christians to have him. He didn't want to fade away. He wanted to stay with me. And uh, I woke up the next morning, and I was like, you're still here. And every day for the next year, I'd wake up and, oh, he's still with me. And I still do it. That feeling has never faded. It was four years ago this January. And just gotten to to understand like Jesus is enough I didn't need answers for all of my questions I just needed him and through being in relationship with him he's taught me what it is to be able to love people appropriately to be able to give my heart to be able to trust and um didn't I actually didn't start dating until three years after I'd given him my heart and the amazing thing of the healing that he's done in me I've really enjoyed my boyfriend's pursuit of me. Like through the way that Jordan has, has loved me and cared for me, I've seen more of Jesus' heart that I was never disqualified and that he wants to give me good things. It's really pretty unbelievable. And in the middle of that, I've understood more and more that Jesus' heart is that we would belong to him. He wants everyone to belong to him, and he's put that heart in me, and I've been wrecked for anything other than getting to lead people to Jesus and to the cross. I really can't believe from the life that I was living and the ways that I led people before that he lets me lead people to him now, and there's nothing better on the whole planet. Um, And the amazing part is it never would have happened without God and without his grace. Um, In Titus 3, it says this, Once we too were foolish and disobedient, 
We were misled and become slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But, I love that word, but when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Guys, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's never about what we can do. We can never earn our way to him. We get to experience what, what he did for us on the cross in relationship with him. And I, I just didn't know it, and now I get to live in it. And for a long time, I really would define myself as an ex-lesbian. Um, you know, I'd introduce myself, tell my story. Yeah, I'm an ex-lesbian. And one night, Jesus stopped me cold in my tracks, and he said, Shannon, that is not who you are. You are mine. You are not an ex-lesbian, and you are defined by my cross, and that's it. It's like, huh, yes, sir, okay. Um, and it's really true. Um, he's mine, and I'm his, and his love is the truest reality of my whole life. I can't believe I get to, to love him and be loved by him, and uh, it's just really unbelievable what he can do through the cross. So thanks for listening to my story. Wow, she said a lot. Did you hear the last part, though? It is so easy for us. Even if, we have no, even if our identity struggles are in a completely different area, it is so easy for us to struggle with our faith being religious fixes that we come to church for. And that's so much of what many of us were taught as Christians. You come to church to get your, your religious fix. You come to church to get your moral fix. And God was gracious in her story. You could hear it. God was gracious to meet her on a regular basis in her, her identity struggles <coughs> and show himself to her. And yet it wasn't until she got to the point where it was really about the cross, where it was really about, God, it's not who I think I am. It's not who I think I need to be in order to be good enough. It's not who other people say I am or think I need to be in order to be good enough. It's all about you and your definition of me. It's all about my surrender, complete surrender, to be obedient to everything you define me as and ask me to do instead of me projecting or somebody else projecting your identity on me. You know, but... Her story does show so much about how our identities are formed. It's, they're so much formed oftentimes by the damage of sin in our life that shape our identity. And, and uh, you know, in the past, in the 90s especially, when I was working in a church, I did a ton of counseling. And I, I, I spent a lot of time with people struggling with sexual identity issues. And, and just like her story, I, I've, never, I've never heard one story from someone where there was not either some sort of an abuse in the background. One guy I know, he grew up in a wonderful, wonderful family, wonderful. And in fact, the guy just friended me on Facebook not too long ago. A wonderful family. And he was abused in a church bathroom at church one day. And his sexual identity, because of that sin, was totally warped. And he became a sex addict in the homosexual lifestyle. 
You know, I know other people who, who have gone through stuff where maybe a parent was absent or, or, or overly controlling and, and, they didn't, and they just didn't want to be like them. And so they, they chose to select a different identity. You know, one, one person I know went from a very controlling uh, 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 parent of the opposite gender and then went into relationships where all the relationships were the same type of people as that very, very overly controlling parent. And, and they ended up deciding that they didn't like them, and so they became... Or, or, you know, we've seen it in marriages. I've seen, you know, I just heard this last week, a testimony about a marriage that was, was difficult, and so the, the wife decides to leave it, and it was, so, it was difficult, and there were unmet needs, and so they define themselves as, as a lesbian. And it, there's so much of our sexual identity and our identity in general that is shaped by the experiences around us and, and I want to I want to encourage you and I, I know there's the uh, the fundraiser for the connects on the same night but I want to encourage you whether it's now or or at a later date when we do this again do things like the generational healing service that's coming up where you actually get to look and maybe take some time to ponder some of the things that have shaped your identity and, and, and are able to bring them to the cross and surrender them to Christ in, in a way that's beautiful and but there's also the, the tie back in so many of our identity issues, especially in, in sexual identity, to unmet needs. Needs that are unmet. We talked about that a few weeks ago in regard to identity, didn't we? we in regard to unmet needs and the needs that we have in relationships. And, and you know, I, it's so easy. I mean, we all know half the marital affairs that happen are because of an unmet need being met by somebody else. Whether it's male or female, it doesn't matter. You get into a counseling relationship or a caring relationship and, and, and all of a sudden there becomes just not only this love and this compassion but this, but this sexual attraction. And, and the same thing happens in, in, in homosexual relationships. Now, a lot of people who here, especially guys who, who, who wouldn't want to admit they've ever struggled with it, which there's a lot of guys, I'll bet, I'll bet most every guy here at some point has had in a, in a desperate place of, of, of a lack of need being met, a, a desperate place of friendship, a, a depressed place has had somebody else of the same gender come to them and care for them deeply, and there were sexual feelings associated with that. It's so easy for our needs, for our longings, when they're met, for them to easily become sexualized and damage our identity or give us a sense of identity that is not God's. You know, Shannon actually earlier in the week when I was talking, talking to her on the phone about this said, said, you know, now if I'm attracted to someone, the question she asks is, what is the need that's attracting me to them? And then ask Jesus to heal that need or to meet that need in an appropriate way. But you see, one of the issues that becomes really hard in this when we talk about sexual identity in the church, the reason a lot of churches don't talk about it because it feels intolerant is because when we look at what the Bible has to say at it, we sometimes just stop, like Shannon said, she likes the but, and she likes the stuff that comes after the but. But so often when we read the Scripture, we stop at the but, and we don't go any further. Because the Bible is very clear on this issue. There's, there's really no vagaries in it at all. In Leviticus 18, 22, it says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That's detestable. And they're speaking to men. So it's just talking about homosexual relationships are, are not the way God designed us. In Romans 1, 21, it says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, 
But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, or we could also say they're for identities that we create as man for ourselves. And this is made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, now today we don't spend a lot of time making, making little shrines of idols and gods that we worship, of little birds that we bow down for, to in our, in our house. But, but the reality is our idols today are things like pornography or magazines that tell us how we should behave or what we should look like or what we should have or what we should do to perform, to be acceptable, to be successful, to be perceived as pretty and beautiful and lovable. And and the reality is that whatever we pursue as our identity is what we worship. We often think that what we do here on Sundays is worship. We get it here and we sing songs and we praise God and we do stuff. But the reality of life is that what we pursue to meet our identity, to, to define who we are, is what we worship. And sometimes, oftentimes in all of our lives, whether it's sexual identity or another area, whether it's money and success or, or whatever, we define a success for ourselves that is worshiping something other than God. And when we do that, that can continually lead down a path where we become more darkened potentially unless we get out of that. It leads to more darkness and more darkness. And it goes on to say, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things or created ideals or created desires or, or feelings that we felt like would meet our needs rather than the Creator who is forever praised. We allowed other things to create our identity rather than God. Because of this, it says, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with, their, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. This is speaking directly to lesbian and homosexual behavior and the beliefs that are sinful or contrary to God's good creation of us. Goes on to say, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And then skipping down to 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they do not, they not only continue to do those very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And here's where the problem comes when we talk about sexual identity. Here's where the issue comes when we deal with people saying it's an intoler intolerant to even talk about this. The Bible says these things are deserving of death. And we stop there. And we don't even look at it in context because it's basically saying that all these sexual impurities, all these other things, worshiping anything, whether it's money or whether it's status or whether it's wealth or whether it's power or whether it's sexuality, whatever we worship to define ourselves other than God is deserving of death. That's all of us. And what we forget is we don't continue past the butt of that because the rest of the book of Romans is all about how Jesus Himself came without us even asking for Him to come. How God came without us asking for Him to come to love us, to offer relationship, to solve this penalty of death for us, to restore us to life, to take our broken down 
car that we are in the accident and align our wheels and, and, and put beautiful fenders back on us and doors and, and restore the inside and, and to make us look beautiful and to work like we were originally intended to work. But instead, when we hear this, especially if we've struggled with these identity issues, we think, especially if nobody knows about it, and this is the first time we hear about it, I've heard this over and over again. People come to me and say, well, gee, if I'm a Christian, then how can I be a Christian? How can God love me if I'm still struggling with that? And that's the whole point. He does love you. He loved you before you even revealed that. He knew that about you before He loved you in the first place. That love is not going to stop at all. It's going to only increase. Shannon says, you know, the confrontation of the Lord to her that defining herself as an ex-lesbian was wrong. That she's only supposed to be defined by the cross and by Jesus. And we're only to be defined by God. We're only to be defined by our Creator who created us. Not by what we feel, not by what we think about ourselves. Our feelings can be deceptive. We can have feelings of attraction and they're deceptive. Yet in spite of all the clarity of these verses, there are people, even who would name themselves as Christians, who would make arguments to dismiss these biblical verses. And I'm just going to go through a couple of these arguments briefly just because I know some of you are dealing with this personally. Some of you are dealing with it in family members, and you may be interested to, to look at the idea of what some people look at, uh, argue in terms of the Bible to justify and say this isn't, this isn't so, that God doesn't say this is a wrong view of who He created us to be. One of the main arguments is that when we look back at Leviticus 18, the verse that I just quoted earlier, uh, Leviticus itself is a book that is basically ceremonial law. And in Christian theology, the idea is that when Jesus came, a lot of the ceremonial law went away. In other words, the ceremonial law is stuff like, well, you've got you to gotta, you gotta sacrifice the animals and you've got to butcher them this way when you sacrifice them to, do, to, to atone for sin. And, and it's all those rules that when Jesus came, they went away. And so there's this argument out there that, well, you know, the Old Testament said this, but that's really just part of the ceremonial law. It's part of the culture. When Jesus came, it went away. The problem with that is if you read the rest of Leviticus 18, if if that's a true statement, then uh, we also have to say that the Bible is just fine with uh, child sex, with bestiality, with, uh, with uh, somebody sleeping with their father's wife or, or their brother's wife or, or whatever, because that same chapter talks about all those things of being corruptions of what God wants. So that argument just doesn't hold water. It's not, it's, not, it's not biblical. It's not a correct understanding of what Jesus did in relation to the Old Testament. It clearly doesn't uh, work in terms of that, in that passage. In Romans 1, the argument will oftentimes be that, well, the same word used for, uh, for, those, uh, for sexuality there is the same word that was used for temple prostitutes. And therefore, it only refers to temple prostitution. It doesn't refer to people who are in a, a monogamous relationship outside of that or people who have those tendencies outside of prostitution. And that's, that's kind of like saying um, 
that because we often refer to mudslinging among politicians today that they are slanderers, that, that 20 or 30 years from now people would look back on today and say that the only people who were slanderers were politicians and not other people. Or, or that's like saying that in the 1970s when I grew up the, the, the word horror was thrown around a lot and I think it's a despicable term that reinforced uh, very negative self-identities on people and probably caused a lot of problems. But the reality is that term, if we look back on that now, we could argue, oh, that was only used for prostitutes. Well, that's not true. It was used across the board for anybody who was loose during that time period. And the same is true here. That's just, a, that's just a convenient argument to try to justify, and it doesn't hold up water with biblical or historical evidence. And then there's the argument that how could love, meaning God, be against my loving feelings? seems he made me this way, and I have these feelings, so it seems like if he made me this way to have these feelings, then I should act upon them. But, you know, we refrain, we, we direct, we channel our feelings all the time. If we didn't, every single one of us would be heavily engaged in premarital sex. Everyone who's married would, would have sex with their, with their best friend's wife because every time or their best friend's husband because every time they go through a difficult time, it's so easy to feel feelings of compassion or feelings of, of, of care and, and those are the same feelings that drive sexuality. And it's just, that, that just doesn't make sense because we're asked all the time to direct and channel our feelings, not to just act upon them indiscriminately. And there's even the whole genetic argument that came out and that's been around. And, and, uh, and even about two, three years ago, there was uh, a guy who did a study that showed uh, the potential of some DNA difference between people who were struggled with a homosexual tendency over others. And the interesting thing is the major media in the United States took that and, and spent a lot of time saying it's a proven fact that it's a genetic issue. And I actually went and did a little research and went to an interview with the guy who did the research at the Boston Globe, and he himself said, and he himself was a, a, a homosexual lifestyle advocate, he said, no, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't prove it. It may prove it. But, but even then, you know, the fall has created genetic differences in us that lead to cancer. I could easily show you through psychological, scientific study that there are certain personalities that are more prone to lie than others. Does that mean that because they're more prone to lie than others that they should, that it's good, that it's right, that it's the way God designed them to be? You know, a person very, very close to me once said, if you can't accept my sexual identity, then you can't accept me. And for 10 years, that... that, that close, lifelong relationship has been shattered, causing great sadness. Tolerance is a completely, completely inadequate paradigm to deal with real life and real relationships. It ends up severing relationships more often than not based upon whoever, whatever point one person decides is the barrier that you have to accept. Otherwise, you can't be in relationship with me. Otherwise, you're intolerant if you don't accept this. You know, I've loved and cared for many people in my life who I don't agree with. In one of the previous churches that I was in, there was a guy who had killed his wife. And, I, I, you know, I loved the guy. I was a friend to him. I grew up in Minnesota as a Minnesota Vikings fan. I, I have learned to love the Green Bay Packers, and I'm working on the Pittsburgh Steelers. Not there yet. You know? 
Keep the faith. Keep the faith. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. You know, I mean, seriously, is that, is that really a definition for good relationships? Tolerance? One of the major values that I have, and one of the major values that we have here at Quest, is that Jesus came to offer relationship and friendship to us in spite of our sin, before we even recognized it as such. And that if we're going to follow him, that we need to be that kind of friends to other people. We don't have to solve the issues. We don't have to argue the issues. Jesus can solve them himself. It's his presence that makes the difference. And his love and his relationship to us is not contingent upon our purity. Do you hear that? You don't hear that a lot of times in churches. His love and relationship to us is not contingent upon our purity. It's contingent upon us committing ourselves to the way of the cross, to continually choosing to prefer His view of us and how He created us over against other people's view of ourselves and my view of myself, to allow Him to be the one to define my identity, whether that's in the sexual arena or whether it's in who I am and where I fit in life. If you're here today and you have a homosexual or lesbian or bisexual identity, worship team, if you can come, you're not the only one. I can guarantee I can walk around this room and if people were honest, we could come up with half a dozen or a dozen or more, maybe even several dozen people who have struggled with this issue, who have defined themselves at one time or another as bisexual, homosexual, lesbian. I could find many married couples who, even though you don't define yourself this way, you have a sexual identity that causes difficulty in your marriage because of what you perceive sex to mean about who you are and how you express that with other people. There is no condemnation for you from me or from Quest or more importantly, from Jesus. Romans later says there's therefore now no condemnation. You can come to Him. We do believe that if you, if you believe those sexual identities about yourself, we believe it's a corruption of what God created you to be. That's no different than somebody who's got a corruption that feels like they're a failure. That's no different than somebody who feels like I have to be an extrovert even though I'm really an introvert in order to be accepted and, and, I can't, and I can't really let people see me for who I am. They are all corruptions of our identity and we shouldn't need to treat them any differently other than to bring all of them to the foot of the cross and to say, Jesus, I choose today to say to you, you're the only one who can rescue me. You're the only one who can define who I am. You're the only one, because you're my creator, who can help me discover the level of freedom and love and satisfaction and peace that I long for, that I so desperately need. You're the only one. And we're going to sing this song, and I want you to sing this as a prayer. Maybe you don't sing. Maybe you just listen to it in your mind. You pray it as a prayer to God as a way of coming to the cross and surrendering.
words, there's no other, uh, there's nothing, this world has nothing to offer me. That's really speaking about what it means to come to the cross. It's really what it means to say, God, you're the only one who can define me. You're the only one who can define a good life. And I want to invite you today, if you've been coming, regardless of whether this is the identity issue or not, or whether you've got other things that you've come and you 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 experience that same thing Shannon talked about in terms of, you know, I, I come to church and I sense something and I'm just drawn and there's something settles and I have a peace and, and I walk away and if I'm not around for a while I end up I end up losing that. Don't, don't come to church for a religious fix. God is inviting you to the cross to surrender everything, to allow Him to define everything for you. And I want to invite you to that today. If you're here and you, you say, that's my experience, I really want to ask you to find somebody you trust who you know really, really has a different experience with God pray for you or come down afterwards after the service is over and grab somebody to pray and talk, okay? But can we just commit together today that Jesus is the one who's going to define our identity? And can we commit to something greater than tolerance? Something that has much broader ability to really be the answer? And that is simply this. just when we agree, not just when we think we're okay, not when, not when we're, not just when everything's fine and we don't think the other person has any sin or doesn't think bad of us or anything like that. Can we just agree to be friends with faith through it all? Because the, the reality is for us, if you're dealing with one of these identity issues or another one, maybe around people pleasing or success or, or business or I don't care what it is. The only way that gets answered is not through religious fixes, but through you experiencing God in a way that you are convinced yourself of His love at such a deep level that you're willing to surrender everything. It's not what I say. It's not what Shannon says. It's not what somebody preaches. It's you experiencing God yourself. Lord, ask that you would be right now to every person who is here for a fix. I pray that that would change in their life. And that it would become something real, something lasting, something that endures throughout the weeks. to sexuality, how we see ourselves in regard to success and worth. Lord, we just ask that you would define that for us. In Jesus' name.